The Bowery Boys episode 210, New York City and the World of Video Games. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Now, while Tom is away on vacation this week, I'll be presenting you with a grab bag sort of episode filled with nostalgia and nerdiness. This is a look at New York City and its relationship to the video game from the digital sewers below Manhattan to the neon lit arcades of Times Square. Now, I'll be running all around the city with this one. We'll start with the relationship between the city and the arcade itself, once filled with shooting galleries, skee-ball, and pinball machines, which, in the 1930s, became public enemy number one for one of New York's most notable mayors. The era of Space Invaders, Pac-Man, and Donkey Kong descends upon New York during its grittiest period, the late 1970s, early 1980s, and arrives, like an alien presence, into many neighborhood arcades, including one of the most famous, which is located in Chinatown, an arcade that is still open and the subject of a brand new documentary. Now, while the video game industry is not something New York City is particularly associated with, the city does in fact set the stage for this revolution of blips and joysticks at the start of the 20th century. Then I'll be heading out to explore one of the world's greatest museum collections of arcade games at the Museum of the Moving Image in Astoria, Queens. I told you we are going places on this show, and we're not actually just sticking to reality here. By the end, we'll actually be going into the games themselves to explore New York as a digital landscape that continues to be a fascination to game developers and players alike. So, are you ready, Player One? Grab your quarters and join me on this New York adventure through the world of video games. Decades before any human being had ever uttered the words Pokemon Go, there existed the unique form of amusement known as the Penny Arcade. These hyper-clattering places first popped up in American cities in the early 20th century, a spin-off of sorts to the Dime Museum and to the Sideshow. They were boardwalk delights of -of turn-of-the-century beach destinations like Coney Island, filled with amusements of a technological sort, and most, as the name implies, for just one penny. Now, figuring in inflation, a penny in 1913 currency would have been about 25 cents or a quarter today. By 1905, dozens of penny arcades had found their way onto the Bowery and along 14th Street in Manhattan, offering a variety of mechanical devices and trifles for young and old alike including shooting galleries, fortune tellers, both automaton and real, tests of strength, 
slot machines, and other fancies, often paired with vaudeville and burlesque shows. Song machines allowed people to listen to phonograph cylinders for the very first time. But the real draw were mechanical moving image machines. Now, not video games, but motion picture devices like Thomas Edison's kinetoscope. For a penny and the turn of a crank, viewers could see the very first moving pictures. From the New York Tribune, 1906, quote, The arcades are brilliantly lighted, warm and comfortable. One is free to wander in them as one wishes. There is nearly always an electric piano playing tunes that makes the blood dance. There is plenty of life and movement. To the child of the tenement, who has no playground but the street, it is the most natural thing in the world to make straight for a penny arcade." Unquote. The films were often violent and prurient. The arcades, filled with wily teenagers, were often located near saloons. So naturally, they became the target of moral crusaders, and indeed by the mid-1910s, a great many were closed down. Some exhibitors would upgrade their establishments into Nickelodeons and, of course, eventually movie theaters. But arcades would remain around. They'd still be around the edges of town, enticing with such new amusements as skee-ball and more sophisticated games enclosed in thick wooden cabinets. By the 1920s, penny arcade amusement had entered the heart of entertainment and vice, Times Square. In 1927, the New York Times observed the Penny Arcade Revolution even in the subway station below. Quote, The marching spirit of Coney Island makes it way underground to the vortex of town at Times Square. One may safely assert that no area of New York makes a more varied bid for pennies, nickels, and dimes, as does that labyrinth beneath the intersections of Broadway, 7th Avenue, 42nd Street and 43rd Street. What do you do, ma'am? What are you setting there for? Why don't you get up and join in the fun? I'm waiting for my husband. He just took our little son to the shooting gallery. Well, make sure he pays a visit to the arcade. Children love it. Hi, sweetie. Well, did you have fun? Yeah. Where's Rodney? I left him in the shooting gallery. What? You left that little boy all alone in the shooting gallery? Why, you know he doesn't even know how to handle a gun. He doesn't? You see these two holes in the hat? <laughs> he was aiming for my eye. He missed. That's no way to speak about our Rodney. Mm. He's a very sweet child. Mm. That was a little clip from the 1950s from the Colgate Comedy Hour featuring Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis in a penny arcade. Now, back then, for those who saw the arcade parlors as a tempting den of vice for unsuspecting children, and certainly there was ample reason for thinking so, imagine their horror when a new temptation entered the fray. The pinball machine. Pinball developed in the early 1930s, a mechanical evolution from an earlier game called Bagatelle. Pinball pioneer games like Baffle Ball and Ballyhoo were cheap to make, frenetic and noisy, requiring an addictive combination of skill and chance. And they created, actually, many of the modern players of the amusement industry, many companies that would later revolutionize the video arcade. But these companies were mostly situated in Chicago, not New York. Now, one possible reason for this, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Well, some slot machine manufacturers began incorporating elements of pinball, and thus the new hot amusement became associated with gambling rings in post-prohibition New York, and then, of course, by extension, organized crime. Now, of course, as with all these things, yes, there definitely was some crossover into gambling. I mean, today, think of when you go to Dave and Buster's or you know one of these other amusement places for children, and you're rewarded with tickets, which you can redeem for candy and toys. That's kind of like gambling with just much lower stakes. 
LaGuardia had become mayor of New York in 1934 and saw one of his chief goals being to shatter the hold that the mob had on the city. He saw the pinball machine as a totem of vice that uniquely affected children, quote, a racket dominated by interest heavily tainted with criminality, hitting the pockets of school children in the form of nickels and dimes given them as lunch money, unquote. LaGuardia attacked the pinball and the slot machine with zeal during his administration. No, I mean, really, he literally attacked it. In New York City, the little flower was on an anti-gambling rampage. Gotham's colorful Mayor LaGuardia led police in smashing and jettisoning 1,200 slot machines. Mechanical pickpockets, Fiorello called them. He aimed the first one into Long Island Sound personally. No more slot machines, he said, and made it stick. In 1942, he authorized the police to smash any pinball game they found and arrest any proprietors. Later, in 1948, under Mayor William O'Dwyer, the New York City Council managed to ban them entirely, a sweeping attack, it was believed, upon organized crime. And so, from the boardwalk of Playland in Rockaway Beach to the corner stores in the Bronx, from the booziest taverns of the Bowery to those subway spots in Times Square, the pinball machine was banned for almost 30 years. Times Square, 1976, I think it's safe to say, was a place that Fiorella LaGuardia might have been horrified by, or to even step into, although he's a pretty brave guy. New York's financial fortunes had deteriorated, its infrastructure, its security, its city services. And these so-called immoral amusements, once discouraged, now seemed to rule the bright lights of 42nd Street. The city's arcades and entertainment centers had managed to survive in other ways. For instance, the great Broadway Arcade at West 52nd Street kept alive as a skee-ball palace. But by the 1970s, pinball games had been glamorously redesigned and remarketed as a pure game of skill. New York, of course, having other bigger fish to fry by this time, eventually unbanned the pinball machine in 1976. One reason, according to the Times, was that the hard-up city could, quote, pick up a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in pinball licensing fees. And so, from that point on, pinball machines have made their way into almost every bowling alley, laundromat, and dive bar in the city. But in another way, the timing was a little bit too late for pinball and the many pinball wizards that New York would foster. For people remember the year 1978 as the year of the invasion. In September of 1979, New York Magazine ran a brief article called Invasion of the Quarter Snatchers. Quote, the Space Invaders craze started in Japan, where a trickle of kids hooked on the only arcade game that does more than shoot back made the mistake of telling friends. Now comes Bally, which snapped up the American rights and dropped just enough machines into the New York area to foment lunacy at the arcades and bars, unquote. It lists precisely three places where the game was located, two of them being New York's most famous arcades, the previously mentioned Broadway Arcade, and Playland at Broadway and 47th Street, both in Times Square. Space Invaders is a simple game where you're just this little roving gunship emptying the sky of an inexhaustible supply of space aliens who are tumbling downward in a fairly organized formation. Although there had been unusual attempts at digital games in New York in the past, and we'll get to those in the next section. And home gaming was already on the radar at this time. It wasn't until Space Invaders that the video arcade movement began. The blips and digital dots of arcade games would obviously define 1980s culture. What's so specifically unique about this phenomenon in New York is the timing of this particular game revolution, arriving in the late 1970s, here at the height or near the height of the city's high crime and urban decay. The video arcade scenarios that we have today are almost 
totally seen either through a brightly lit sheen of children's entertainment or through a sunny gauze of hipster nostalgia. The video arcades of the early 80s, in reality, were chaotic, somewhat dangerous, maybe definitely dangerous, but incredibly appealing. Playland was a name shared by several arcades throughout the city, with locations in Times Square at 42nd Street and 47th Street. Described in the 1940s as a shooting gallery and skill game emporium, the 42nd Street Playland already had a grim reputation by the 1970s. Now, quoting from a 1977 New York Times article, it described Playland as, quote, a reputed hangout for chicken hawks or older men in search of young male prostitutes, unquote. It was certainly still a very notorious hangout on 42nd Street when the video games arrived in the late 70s, Asteroids and Zaxxon and Pac-Man perhaps bringing a more innocent-seeming allure to the street. At least for a short period, video games may have spruced up the reputation of some of these arcades. From a 1981 profile by New Yorker writer David Owen, quote, It's lunchtime in Manhattan, and the Playland Arcade at 47th Street and Broadway is crowded. Standing shoulder to shoulder with Playland's traditional clientele of Times Square drifters and truant schoolboys is what appears to be a full-scale assault team from the corporate towers of nearby Rockefeller Center. You can hardly move from one end of the place to the other without grinding your heel on somebody's wingtip shoe. There are three-piece suits everywhere, unquote. While video arcades popped up around the five boroughs, it was the arcades of Midtown that created an already irresistible draw, and more than a few teenagers shoved a handful of quarters in their pockets and took the train to Penn Station to hit the arcade Station Break, or one of these others in Times Square, only to go home a bit past their curfew with empty pockets. Now this place, Station Break, was awesome, was famous for having a line of Space Invader games in the window hanging upside down, of course, because, I mean, that's so 80s. And a great many more Space Invader machines inside with huge lunchtime lines of people waiting to play them. Video games became a proper trend, a fascination, influencing fashion, design, and music. How much more 80s does it get when in 1982, Martin Amos, yes, that Martin Amos, soon to write his iconic 80s novel, Money, gets into this game here with a book called Invasion of the Space Invaders. Quote, Playland, by far the best arcade in the Times Square area, has the best two defenders I have played, beautifully exact and responsive, unquote. The video game craze would revitalize the arcade and other family-friendly joints. They would influence both gallery artists in Soho and graffiti artists alike. However, the hype would actually be short-lived, as competently produced home video systems and other faddish delights of the 1980s began convincing people to keep their quarters. After all, in most arcades, the threat of crime was still very real in the early 1980s. On January 1st, 1984, a high school senior was beaten to death with a baseball bat at an Upper East Side arcade called Games, 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 a place which the city had targeted for closure for over two years. This crime and similar incidents, paired with a downturn in the interest in video games, did have a chilling effect. One holdout, though, was the aforementioned Broadway Arcade at 52nd Street, a relatively clean location that was a particularly great place to see Broadway stars before and after shows. Now, I wonder if any cast members of Cats ever went there, like in costume. Just, just, just let me visualize it. Now, let's flash forward to a very, very different Times Square in 1999, year 2000. A couple new video arcades return to Times Square. Broadway City and Barcode. Now, you might even remember an episode of Sex in the City filmed at Barcode. It was a very Sex in the City kind of place. I'll just use this quote from the New York Post from May of 2000 to describe the aesthetics of this latest iteration of arcades. 
Quote, this 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year funhouse has a full bar, a DJ booth, and loads of video games and virtual reality, so the party will never stop, even if it's just a party of one. To help ensure Barcode won't attract only Times Square tourists and anti-social nerds, Barcode hired A-list publicist Lizzie Grubman and Peggy Siegel to host last night's opening, unquote. Now, neither of these places are open today. However, finding a clean, shiny arcade is not really a problem in today's Times Square, especially if you enjoy your theme restaurants. And of course, you can certainly locate arcades built for nostalgia uh, in various places throughout New York, like Barcade and Two Bits Retro Arcade. But there is one arcade left in Manhattan, which has been open off and on since the 1940s. But you have to go to Chinatown to find it. Chinatown Fair opened on the ground floor of Port Arthur Restaurant, considered to be the very first Chinese food restaurant in New York City. Located at 7 and 9 Mott Street, Port Arthur opened in the late 1890s, a diplomat, if you will, of Chinese cuisine in the days when life around Chinatown was still considered quite exotic. At some point in the late 1940s, the Emporium was replaced with an arcade. The Chinatown Fair survived the closure of the Port Arthur restaurant by moving across the street to its present location at 8 Mott Street. Now, this, of course, eventually became a video arcade, quite famous the world over, actually. But many New Yorkers remember it for a rather organic game that it used to have, an actual chicken in a machine that danced and played tic-tac-toe, and rather well, actually. But it's not the dancing birds, but the dancing people and the street fighters, the virtual kind, who have made Chinatown Fair an underground New York landmark. The place is so legendary in the minds of many that you won't be surprised that somebody has made a documentary about it called The Lost Arcade. So I used to actually go down to Chinatown Fair when I first moved to New York in the 1990s, and I recently saw the film... The Lost Arcade. It opens in New York on August 12th. So since I'm in this video game gear here, I wanted to meet the director, Kurt Vincent, and, and kind of figure out what the mystique of this place is. So where else would I go to chat with him but naturally the Chinatown Fair itself? Today, the Chinatown Fair is as noisy and frenetic as ever, an L-shaped corridor with dozens of games raging and exploding at once. I met Kurt outside Chinatown Fair and managed to find a tiny place of solace on top of an air hockey table. My name is Kurt Vincent and I'm the director of The Lost Arcade. Now one of the things that's certainly appealing about a place like Chinatown Fair is that it's simply one of the last holdouts. Kurt's film documents a unique New York place almost at the moment it goes away forever. And that was certainly Kurt's motivation for making the film. You know, New York was full of arcades in the 80s and early 90s, especially around Times Square. Um, They were all over. And so slowly as those closed, uh, people were asking, where can I play games? Where where can we go? And so there was only one answer, Chinatown Fair. And so that's when Chinatown Fair kind of became the modern Chinatown Fair, which was this meeting of kids from all over the five boroughs uh, and became much more diverse and interesting. So being a New Yorker and being surrounded by, you know, a constantly evolving uh, cityscape and seeing, you know, on a daily basis, seeing the various beloved local businesses close due to uh, rising rent and um, changing culture. I was sad that this movie was going to be about the loss of the arcade. And, you know, I was going to call it The Last Arcade. But that changed when uh, Chinatown Fair reopened under new ownership. And it sort of, like, had this whole new life. And to me, it was, like, um, gave me, like, a really optimistic hope for the city. Because uh, it showed how the the city will, will change. That's inevitable. And um, that's just a fact, but it doesn't have to necessarily change for the worse, always. What kept Chinatown Fair alive, in fact, I think what made it even more of a draw for teenagers, was its embrace of the culture surrounding one of the most popular games of the 1990s, Street Fighter. Street Fighter was the heart of 
Chinatown Fair, and not just Street Fighter, but all the fighting games to follow Street Fighter, uh, specifically Street Fighter 2. And that game is sort of the, the gold standard of arcade games because it's a game meant to be played with other people. They're short games, so you know you, the, the machine can make a lot of money. So arcade owners love the game because you know the, the matches are only a couple minutes. You know you don't just get stuck on the game uh, and play for an hour straight. That's what Chinatown Fair became, a fighting game arcade. And, and its reputation was not just a New York thing. People from all over the world had heard about this arcade from friends that either passed through New York or read about it in magazine, video game magazines. Through that competition, uh, strangers became friends. And so this really incredibly tight-knit community grew around these different games. And of course, my personal favorite, the game that gave millions of people bad knees when they played it or when they pranced upon it, the terribly addictive game Dance Dance Revolution. Yeah, and speaking of Dance Dance Revolution, you know what I found interesting with Chinatown Fair, and, and one of the reasons why we made the movie was because it wasn't just a nostalgic place; it was a, a contemporary, thriving, living community uh, that wasn't stuck in the past. They weren't trying to reclaim something that had been lost. These were these were young people playing new games, and you know, in 2000 when Dance Dance Revolution came out, it revitalized the arcade business uh, and brought in a whole new crowd of people. And so every couple of years, you'd, you'd hopefully have a new game that would excite people and bring a whole new crowd in. And, and that's how the business sustained itself. Thankfully, Kurt brought along one of the stars of the Lost Arcade, a longtime regular of Chinatown Fair named Anthony Cali. Yeah, Cali, like California. My, uh, my, my nickname is Helgen. Um, I've been coming to this arcade for about 17, 18 years. As he described to me, Anthony's affection for the old Chinatown Fair is especially notable considering some of the other arcades that he used to go to when he was a kid. Well, I mean, I want to I kind of just sum up one thing real fast, is that I actually was playing a lot of arcade games on, on St. Mark's Place in the, in, in the 80s and 90s when I was a kid. I used to, to kind of like just leave my house when my parents weren't there, or you know, even if they were there, I'd sneak out my fire escape and I'd go to St. Mark's. And that place was truly not a place for kids to be. There were a lot of uh, drug dealers... Uh, prostitutes, uh, gangs, all, you, you name it. You Any 80s uh, grimy 70s movie of New York City was just on that block alone, mostly. I mean, it was pretty much everywhere, but so I, I've seen everything that you could ever think of. Chinatown Fair was an incredibly unique community, although Anthony describes a very different neighborhood than the one that greets visitors on Mont so, Street so today. So the thing is, I remember coming to this place as a child, so, and then my, my uh, junior high school was actually walking distance from here. So I was like, oh, yeah, I used to go to that place. So let me check it out now. And then I realized that they had all the games that I wanted to play, too. So from then on, I started coming here. And as I said before, you know, I've seen all types of different things. So it wasn't, it wasn't really that bad for me. But believe me, I think for somebody not from New York City, they would not want to walk into this place during those days because there were a lot of Chinese gangs that were around, they were. We had the Bloods and the Crips around, not necessarily inside, but right on the block. Like that was normal. <laughs> but when I came here, I I felt I felt something inside that just told me like this is the place to be, and I'm safe in here, regardless if what's going around, what's going on around. So, you know, I just always had that like that that feeling, and there was like always like a kind of like an essence of just wholesomeness, regardless how. How like grimy it looked inside, it, you know. It was like it was like my second home. <laughs> the documentary Lost Arcade hits movie theaters in select cities this month, and will be available to watch at home in the near future. Coming up next, how some surprising locations in New York helped in the development of video games, and a trip to Astoria to visit a few arcade games in what might be best described as the classiest arcade in New York City, all after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. 
It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Well, the first portion of the show, that was definitely the nostalgic wing of the show. But don't worry, we're going to get back to the nostalgia here in just a few minutes. But I did want to take a little bit to look at the development of video games themselves. Today, the centers of American video game development, from home consoles to game apps, are centered in California, with major companies in Washington, Texas, and yes, some in the state of New York, of course. But over 100 years ago, the entire concept of this industry, the computer, even the screen itself, would barely have been understood. In 1889, the Western Electric Company, a manufacturing unit of Bell Telephone, completed construction on a vast science research center located near the water's edge in the West Village. The Bell Telephone Laboratories was the largest research center in the country, literally feet away from train tracks delivering goods along the west side. In fact, when the elevated railroad today we call the High Line was constructed in the 1930s, it actually did pull into one of the laboratory buildings at Bank and Bethune Streets. It was here that all variety of technologies were first developed. Telephones, of course, but also audio and recording devices, radio broadcasting, Two inventions here would send us down the rabbit hole of our topic today. In 1929 came the invention of the color television. In a demonstration the following year, assistants held up various pieces of fruit, a watermelon and pineapples, displaying their vivid colors. From the 1930 brochure, quote, the red of the melon, the black seeds, and the green rind were plainly discerned. But the computer itself was revolutionized here on the west side as well, including the first operating electrical digital computer using binary number notation and the first remote operation of a digital computer. Later, in 1947, from their New Jersey labs, Bell scientists would invent the transistor, the seed from which all digital technology would sprout. The World's Fair of 1939 and 1940 out in Flushing Meadows, Corona Park in Queens debuted other innovative contributions, presented, of course, in the context of Robert Moses-directed amusements within a wide range of curiously designed pavilions. Two particular exhibitors were, unbeknownst to them, coming at the invention of the video game from opposite ends. David Sarnoff, president of the Radio Company of America, RCA, opened his pavilion with a television broadcast, displaying the wonders of his sparkling new television broadcasting system, NBC. However, visitors to the pavilion were allowed to actually stand in front of the camera and wave to their friends inside, and were even given little cards that said, I was televised the first public interactivity between users and the images on screen. Over at the Westinghouse Pavilion, meanwhile, guests were playing around with something called a Nimitron, which debuted here in 1940. Now, you might have played the game of Nim before. Basically, this is a game where you retrieve a certain number of pins, and the object is to be the person that pulls the last pin. But have you ever played Nim with a device the size of a refrigerator? That's what fairgoers did in 1940. Above this massive computer console was a light box. Players chose a number of lights to extinguish, and the computer followed suit until one player was the victor, that player usually being the computer. Interestingly, its designer, Edward Condon, actually programmed the computer to act with a delay, believing that if it took its turn in a split second, it might embarrass 
the human player. So not only was this one of the first computer games ever, it was even polite about it. Although this is definitely an outlier, they never really did anything with this technology, it is the first example of computer technology for the pursuit of amusement, brought to you by the World's Fair. Now let's flash forward about 20 years and out to Long Island, to Brookhaven National Laboratory in the town of Brookhaven. By the 1950s, computer development was still mostly in the hands of private and government-funded laboratories, although some private companies, like IBM, were making strides by, for instance, developing computer language. Now, here at Brookhaven, people often visited the campus, but were frequently bored by the seemingly inane world of computing. So the director at the lab decided to invent a little trifle to entertain guests and get them into the exciting world of computing. Using an oscilloscope as a screen, the director and his researchers invented a game called Tennis for Two. Players could compete by bouncing a green ball from side to side. Today, this looks like what I imagine a cat goes through when you dart a laser pointer against the wall. So it's pretty rudimentary and hardly sophisticated. But to have never seen something like this before, to play against another human competitor using an entirely virtual playing field, well, this itself was an extraordinary leap forward. These sorts of humble ping pong games would, of course, be the first step into the development of video games. By the 1960s and early 70s, computer development would at last coalesce geographically along the West Coast, in the area south of San Francisco, in the cities and towns which today we call Silicon Valley. It would be here that an industry would be built upon the research of computer scientists everywhere, finally with the notion of profit and mass production. Now, of course, some of that was happening here on the East Coast, of course, but in New York and New Jersey in the 1960s, there was more of a focus on collaborations between computer labs and avant-garde artists. The first dips in the 60s into the world of digital art, still alive today in modern art museums. So now I actually want to stop the show a little bit and introduce to you our associate producer for the summer, Alec Grossman, who's been sitting here the whole time while I've been waxing on about old computers. Hey, Alec, what's going on? Hey, Greg, how are you? I'm good. Uh, are you finding any of this interesting? Uh, yeah, now I know something about <laughs> video games. <laughs> so have you ever been to the Museum of the Moving Image? Now, you're from New York uh, originally, right? Yeah, so, you... so it's kind of embarrassing. I've... Uh been on this earth and in the city for 22 <laughs> years and i've yet to make it to the beautiful neighborhood of astoria queens we're going to change that this afternoon we're going to go out to the museum because they have an amazing collection of old arcade and home console games probably one of the biggest museum collections in america certainly the oldest so how about we go out there now and then we'll chat with one of the curators and then we're going to use this as an excuse to stop talking about video games and start playing the video games. Oh, my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> so let's wrap this up and we'll go out there now. All right, let's do it. The Museum of the Moving Image opened in 1988 within the former Astoria Studios, a film production space once owned by Paramount Pictures. In fact, today, it sits astride the thriving Kaufman Astoria Studios, tracing back to the studio where classic films by Rudolph Valentino and the Marx Brothers were filmed. But the museum immediately chose a rather unconventional path in some of its initial curation in a show that would be called Hot Circuits, a rather far-sighted idea for the day, as museum executive director Carl Goodman explains. Uh, the museum uh, acquired a collection of video arcade games in 1989 as part of an effort to mount the first ever museum exhibition on the video game. Uh, at the time, people thought, of course, that we were absolutely nuts 
what's a museum that pays homage to the works of John Ford and Orson Welles or even Norman Lear doing with these these contraptions that are the electronic equivalent of hula hoops. And what we felt is there, first of all, it is a technological medium. There's a tremendous amount of innovation going into the, the making of these systems. Uh, the second is it's a design-based medium. There are people thinking about how you create interactive experiences that are challenging and enticing and addicting enough to continue to engage in them but also not too frustrating either and so game design those two words even uh, were never said together uh, way, way back when I mean and now you have universities uh, offering degrees in it the museum regularly features arcade video games in their regular collection as well as classic home console games but for the summer of 2016, they're presenting their greatest hits in an exhibition called Arcade Classics. Now, removing games from their original context, you're really able to gain surprising perspectives on objects you probably have looked at and played with for decades. It's almost like for each game you had to build an entirely unique medium for it. So today you play, uh, name a game that's here, let's say you play Pac-Man, I think, on your iPhone. But here what we have is a machine designed for only one purpose. And it's, it's, a, it's an enclosure, it's screens, it's an interface, a specialized interface. It's a, a backlit panel, coin mechanism, all devoted to just one thing, playing Pac-Man. And I think when young people come here, they find that really interesting because they're used to the variability of games as being things that you, just like with television, can bring in and out of one existing system. Now, while I was talking to Carl at this point, my eyes kept drifting over to the side to this strange, sparkling green arcade game, far older than the rest of the games in the room. It looked like it was wearing a hooded green evening gown. Com com that's computer space from 1971. Yeah, that, that, there is nothing quite like the design of computer space. You expect it to kind of start wiggling, um, but remember, these were space-age systems back then. Man, you know, we had man, men going into space, and computers were high, high-tech. This was the first time most people, aside from using pocket calculators, which are arguably digital, uh, were really exposed to interact with screens at all, right? Um, so it was brand new to people. But an entrepreneur decided to take Space War, which was playing computer labs, turn it into a consumer product called Computer Space. So that's what that is. And the code was open source, so they didn't have to pay for it. They didn't call it open source. They just, there was no IP on it. And the game tanked. And the game tanked for a number of reasons. First of all, they, the original is played on these systems with these beautiful glowing vector graphics monitors that cost tens of thousands of dollars. So he out, re-outfitted it for a kind of Toshiba store-bought $100 TV. And then the, inter, the interface to the game, two joysticks, two buttons, way too complicated for anyone who's never played a video game before. Uh, but the guy who, who made it, his name is Nolan Bushnell. He then decided to start a company called Atari. He said, let's simplify. He saw a demonstration of this they called light tennis game at a retail store that a company called Magnavox had arranged to show to retailers before its release. And he went to a friend and he said, let's do that. And they created Pong. And the rest is history. As Carl was showing me some of the games in the exhibition, they were all very arrayed, very carefully and reverently, like sentinels along the wall. I realized that you know, as a museum visitor, it was almost like I was seeing these games for the very first time. Well, and they survived the test. This is not just nostalgia. Nostalgia is fun. We love nostalgia, but this is not just nostalgia. This is there. There are generations and generations of game designers and players who have been influenced by these games, and the best of them survive the test of time just as much as any early silent film might. Mm -hmm. Except, strangely enough, even better we find with young people because they're used to playing video games today that don't necessarily have flashy 3D Call of Duty style graphics. Sure. Uh, it's on their mobile phones. I cannot think of Doodle Jump. I, maybe I'm dating myself with Doodle Jump Doodle even. Jump. 
but without uh, you know the one of the, the early very popular iPhone video games without thinking about Qbert, which is down the way. So one of the things I certainly had on my mind as I was watching children play on all of these particular games was how do you have a museum exhibit with objects that are meant to be preserved but also regularly used? Well, that was on their mind too. And, and it's you know for us, it's not about making a profit; it's about keeping these games working. And and the the sort of philosophical or existential question about how you balance our commitment to preserving the history of video games while allowing the public to contribute to their death every day through playing them. And, and, and uh, like if, if it can't be played and we can't turn on the screen, what's the point of having it? And yet we're a museum and it's important that these things keep going. So um, again, that's a balancing act that has to do with making sure you have the right people and technicians to deal with things as they arise. As long as I'm standing, there will always be historic art video arcade games on display at the yes. Museum of the Moving Image. So Alec and I took Carl up on that offer of vigorously using their exhibit pieces by spending about an hour whizzing through playing various games like Asteroids, Gauntlet, and Cubert. Yes, I'm not even really sure where to start. Eventually, I decided to go all Martin Amos and even try my hand at a little Defender. You're on this little rocket ship, just sort of skimming the surface of this planet, and I, oh my gosh, I forgot how to, I forgot what to do. <laughs> Uh, oh, I got it, got, go. I got it, got it. Here we go. Oh, you, you've done this before. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe a few times. All oh, right, okay. I remember, I remember being really, really hard back in, when I was a kid. All right, well. You can visit the Museum of the Moving Image anytime to see their fantastic collection of video games, as well as some excellent film and television memorabilia. Their current show, Arcade Classics, runs for the next few weeks. So, Alec, okay, so I have looped you in to this whole video game extravaganza here, but I didn't even bother to ask, do you play video games? I mean, do you have a favorite video game? You know, I, I grew up playing the original Pokemon. Oh. And now all these uh, now now the kids these days playing Pokemon on their phones. I know. Well, they're, know. well, they're actually using New York City. At least you know playing it here in New York City, you actually sure. use the city as a landscape. Mostly, you know, you almost never think about where a video game is set. I guess that's kind of what's interesting about Pokemon Go because right. it's it's set wherever you're at, right? You know, most video games are set in made-up places. You know, you're not flinging angry birds in, like, in an actual field somewhere. <laughs> and that's what makes a place like New York truly special. For off and on, since the beginning of video game production, New York has actually been a place in video games. Now, I haven't done, like, an official survey or anything, and so I'm guessing that Los Angeles and Tokyo are probably well represented as well. But New York seems to be a place programmers go back to for very obvious reasons. The skyline is iconic. The layout of New York is very conducive to certain kinds of games with bridges in the background and subway tunnels underneath the ground. Then, of course, I mean, there's times when New York feels like a video game. Where crossing the street becomes a little bit like Frogger or a windy day turns items from a construction site into a game of Donkey Kong. But subterranean New York is the actual setting of the 1983 video game Mario Brothers, using perhaps a bit of the urban legend of alligators living in the sewers to inspire the action. Mario and Luigi are two Italian-American plumbers from Brooklyn, just trying to get through the day while being attacked by turtles and something called fighter flies. Now, I haven't spent too much time in this show on the development of home video games, but this is where you'll find New York in all sorts of forms. In the 1984 Atari game NYC The Big Apple, a player must drive along a somewhat accurate map of Manhattan, visiting tourist attractions, and 
and every so often stopping by an automat for some lunch. And that is it. The goal of the game is literally to survive in New York City, to survive an average week. This was a concept for a game. Some of you may remember that old text game. It was all text from 1986 called Amnesia. Probably the most creative usage of New York. The player wakes up naked in a midtown Manhattan hotel room with no memory and must answer a series of questions to solve the mystery. The game was written by sci-fi author Thomas Dish, programming most every street in Manhattan, most of them, over 4,000 specific New York locations into the game to explore. Manhunter New York, that's another game from 1989, well it it really wasn't that fun, but the visuals of post-apocalyptic Manhattan are fascinating. And it's a little eerie because it includes images of a heavily damaged World Trade Center. New York is perfect for driving games, of course. In the video world, there's never any traffic. There's not a holdup ever on the BQE, and you can drive 100 miles per hour on the Brooklyn Bridge as illustrated in such games as Turbo Outrun, Crazy Taxi 2, and the 1999 driver, You Are the Wheel Man. Easily the most intriguing alternate reality is the New York provided by the game Grand Theft Auto 4, Liberty City with its Burroughs Broker, Dukes, Bohan, and Algonquin. There's no Staten Island, sorry. As game graphics have improved, so too has the depth of accuracy in video games. The cute worlds of the Mario Brothers have been left behind in recent years, with the gritty, realistic depictions of New York being used in games like Max Payne, True Crime New York City, and Call of Duty Modern Warfare. But I do have to give a particular call out here at the end to my favorite Assassin's Creed 3 from 2012, and it's my favorite because it's set during the Revolutionary War, and you get to explore the streets of 18th century New York post the Great Fire of 1776. Now, obviously, there's a thousand unique and stunning moments of virtual New York City here that I haven't been able to get to, and in general, I know that I focus mostly here on the arcade experience and not the home or mobile worlds. So please head over to our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, to check out pictures and videos of some of the things I've talked about on the show, and leave a comment, some element of video game history that I might have missed, or a unique moment that you think people should check out. I want to enthusiastically thank Kurt Vincent, Irene Chin, and Anthony Cali from The Lost Arcade Documentary, and Carl Goodman, Tomoko Kawamoto, and the rest of the staff at the Museum of the Moving Image for their help in putting together this show. And of course, thanks to you, Alec, uh, for helping out and generally being my foil to this bizarre adventure. And a big thanks, of course, to our patrons who support the Bowery Boys podcast every month through Patreon. Because of them, we're able to produce bigger, more ambitious programs every two weeks. And we're about to send out a huge announcement of a monthly meetup for Patreon members only. So if you want to get in on the ground floor of that, just go over to patreon.com slash Boys and sign up. And of course, our book, Adventures in Old New York, is out now in bookstores all over the place. So please go and grab yourself a copy and let us know what you think. We're having more book events in the New York City area throughout the rest of the summer and fall. So check out the blog for more information. And now I think it's time for me to log off. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs>